0: Oh, uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I think Tony requires our undivided attention. He's like that. Oh, for granted. It's not a short lesson, but it's a short lesson giver. Okay, nice. Tony, I was interacting with the brothers and sisters. You should try it. <clears throat> nice to see you, everybody. Most everybody. So we gather together, think about it, with believers all over the world next week to celebrate a resurrected Savior. We don't just celebrate on Easter Sunday, do we? Uh, new life in Christ and resurrection life is what we celebrate all the time. Did you speak to Him at all today, to the Lord Jesus? Of course, you did, because you believe He's alive from death. Think about the privilege. He is. The cross is a symbol of our faith, but it's not just the cross. It's the cross plus the empty tomb, which gives us hope. And because of what Jesus did, he left the tomb empty. Therefore, we have confidence in what Jesus said. Listen to what he said. Because I live, you will live also. That's John chapter 14, verse 19. No other leader of a religious movement Um, can make statements like that. It has to be validated by something they've done. Jesus rose from death. Therefore, what he did validates what he said. So we gather together next week. The sunrise service is at 630. Scott already mentioned this kind of inadequately, but he, you know, he did the best, (laughs) did the best he could. Anyway, that's a service. Yes, it's on the card over there. Uh, It's a service many of you like to attend, 6.30, and again, no iConnect classes next week. Uh, Two Easter services on Sunday here in English, 9.30, our pastor preaches, 11.15, Uh, Freeman Tomlin preaches. The musical fair, as you know, in the second service will be of a more contemporary style. In the 9.30 service, there'll be the choir and orchestra. An identical service will take place Saturday night before Easter Sunday at 6 o'clock. And um, we would like to request that you good people who are regulars here at Sagemont, consider, if you're able, attending the Saturday night 6 o'clock service. You won't miss anything because it's going to be identical to the 9.30 service on Sunday. And if you come Saturday night, then you don't have to come Sunday, and we would appreciate it if you don't. Um, Because we want to open up seats for guests. As you know, right or wrong, this is reality. Some people who never darken the doors of a church will come on Christmas and Easter. We're happy about that because they'll hear a message that could change their lives. But we would hate it if visitors can't find a place to sit. Therefore, we're asking you to consider coming Saturday night, and then you can sleep in on Sunday or go on an Easter egg hunt and all the rest. So, uh, And then in addition, there'll be the Spanish celebration of Resurrection Day on Friday night, this Friday night wonderful service for spanish speakers and so we have lots of opportunities to celebrate jesus alive from the dead we are in james as you know brother chuck got us started last week and we'll pick up where he left off today first let me ask you a few questions do you lack wisdom um my guess is though we're a fairly diverse group, we have that in common. We all lack it. For instance, you have conflict with your next-door neighbor. You need wisdom as a believer in knowing how to deal with it. Your company has offered you a wonderful opportunity, but it requires relocation. You need wisdom about that. You've received word, you or a loved one, that you have a serious illness. You're faced now with a number of treatment options, which to choose. You need wisdom. Your elderly parents or you yourself are no longer able to care for themselves or for yourself, and you need wisdom in looking into alternative care. Uh, three people in this wonderful church have approached you to serve in various ways. You need wisdom in making a decision about that. This may not happen to you, but it happens to me all the time. Someone is flirting with you. This is just, it's just something, what could I tell you? I have to deal with. I've just been cursed with these good looks and... I mean, you need wisdom when that happens. Someone asks you to get married or unmarried. You need wisdom about those kinds of things, so I don't think there's a person in here who would deny the need for wisdom in living life, and yet I'm perplexed about what James says in uh, chapter 1, now verse 5. Look what James uh, says, but if any of you lacks wisdom. Why is it an if? Well, I think It's a technique James is using. He really means since, since you lack wisdom. However, many of us are reluctant to admit to it because we're prideful. It's that pride thing again. Let's be honest, even we believers would prefer not to have to depend upon God. We would rather do things our way. We would rather take counsel in our own wisdom, so to speak you know, do our own thing. And so James kind of, I think, sarcastically smokes it out and puts it in this sense, if any of you is willing to humble yourself and admit to the need uh, for wisdom, says he, here's what you, you could do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Look how simple and clear that is. If you lack it, says James, Ask for it from God. So simple, and yet I think many of us are reluctant to do so as a matter of first resort in decision-making. Why is it? I wonder if it's because we're doubtful about God's response. How will he respond to our respond to our request for wisdom? Well, we need not wonder anymore about how God responds because James goes on to say here in the text... But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, look, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You and I have to make decisions every day. Some are minor, others are very significant. But we have that in common. We're all decision makers, we have to make choices, and we want to be good decision makers. We live life. We want to live life with skill. By the way, that's what the biblical concept of wisdom means. It means skillful living. No, not the accumulation of knowledge, not a formal education. Wisdom, from a biblical point of view, is skillfulness in living life. We live life. We have to. The giver of life has... For now, bequeathed to us, we want to be better at living life. We need wisdom in so doing. Therefore, it's different than knowledge. Knowledge is the accumulation of information. Some have much of it and yet lack wisdom. I knew a man. I hadn't seen him in years. I don't know his situation today, but I knew it then. Brilliant. He could carry on an intelligent conversation about anything. At the time, he was uh, experiencing his second failed marriage, and he was uh, taking on other partners, um, not multiple partners at once, one at a time. He was seeking companionship. and He was seeking legitimate things, I think, but in an illegitimate way. And the point is, it never worked out. One Relationship failed, then the next one failed, and so on he uh, he had antagonized all of his children and grandchildren. They really wanted nothing to do with him. He failed in that regard. He had accumulated quite a lot of wealth because he was quite a brilliant man, and yet at the time he was in the process really of squandering it all he uh, he mishandled his financial resources, and he was then eating to excess. He had manifold medical issues, many exacerbated, if not caused, by his unhealthy eating patterns. Here was a man, I wasn't, I'm not criticizing him, I want to learn from him, Here was a man who had accumulated in the course of living life much knowledge but little wisdom. Can you see? He lacked the skill in living life. Relationships failed. Vocations failed. All the rest, he lacked skill. Well, James is saying we don't have to be that way. We can ask God for wisdom. He won't get angry. He's not withholding, James says. He gives to all generously and without reproach. So, James is saying to be skillful in living life, we should make recourse to the giver of life. That seems to make sense. Now, to be fair to the text, though it is true, it seems to me, that by application, you could ask God for wisdom in any life area I think the specific context here is suggesting we are invited to ask God for wisdom when we are experiencing trials and hardship. So if you back up with me just for a second to what Brother Chuck covered last week, verse 2. You know verse 2 is uh, Brother Chuck's life verse. Count it all joy. You know about this? Sure you do because he repeats it about 93 times a day. Drives you crazy. Sometimes we're in meetings and we're dealing with something and Brother Chuck will say, count it all joy. You want to smack Brother Chuck he <laughs> says that. <clears throat> but he lives by this verse and um, um, has a right to quote it in light of the challenging circumstances the Schneiders have experienced. Anyway... Uh, Look at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, or count it all joy. Look, when you encounter various trials. So that's where I get the idea the context here has to do with believers experiencing trials or hardship, to which James says, when you're experiencing those things, ask God for wisdom. Again, you could ask God for wisdom about any life area, but this specifically suggests to me, you must particularly ask God for wisdom when you're going through a hard time. Why? That's when we're tempted most to act or think unwisely. For instance, when you hurt, even though you be a Christian, you're going to be a little more prone to say to God, why do you hate me? Or you say things like, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Or you say, what have I done to deserve this? Or you say, if not literally, then in your heart, you say, why are you punishing me? And James says, that's when you really need wisdom because not one of those things is true. It is true that we can't wrap our mind around the difficulties God permits to befall us It's very hard for us to square life's harsh circumstances with the goodness of God for sure. And that's why when life's circumstances seem to run contrary to the goodness of God, that's when we need wisdom more than at any time. Do you know we so lack wisdom at those times that at times the Holy Spirit does the praying for us? This is interesting. You find it in Romans 8. The context there is suffering, and around verses 26 and 27, somewhere in there, uh, it says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who knows the mind of the Spirit Answers because he knows the mind of the spirit. I think what happens during difficult times, the believer says, Oh God, why? And why do you hate me? And why are you punishing me? And, and God does not despise that. He's glad we're coming to Him, but He knows we're praying amiss. And the Holy Spirit, with groanings too deep for words, in other words, it's not audible, it's between Him and the Father, the Holy Spirit, I think, essentially says, Father, don't take seriously what your son or daughter is saying because they're speaking the language of emotion. They don't understand what's going on. They just hurt. Uh, Instead, I think the Holy Spirit says, please sustain them through this until what you are allowing to happen produces in them what you intend for it to happen. So, so when we hurt, we really need wisdom. Now, here's the other thing. When you experience pain, you're most prone to seek to minimize it through pleasure. Pain and pleasure can occupy the same place. We are all as humans driven to decrease pain and increase pleasure. That's the way it is. So when there's pain, you and I are going to be more tempted to give in to illegitimate pleasure-seeking. Some pleasures are legitimate. Others are not. And so it's very interesting when a believer is experiencing pain or hardship. It's very interesting how the evil one will oftentimes introduce into the mix uh, an unusually tempting situation. Maybe a woman who never was around before all of a sudden turns up. <clears throat> so it's at those times when we are hurting and just want to break from the pain, we're more prone to find something online or out there or something, sexual or financial or I don't know. Who knows? Whatever it is, that's a fix, a quick fix to alleviate the pain. That's why I think James says that in this context, when you're hurting, please ask God for skill in living through this. Don't approach this unskillfully because you will succeed in interrupting the pain with pleasure, but only for a season. And then the pain quotient will go up. It'll be multiplied. If we're honest, and we went around one person at a time here, we would say to the group, a good deal of the trouble I have now is poor choices I made before. Most of our time as ministers is working with people to help them. You can't undo, but you can manage the effects of poor choices before. I don't mean to hurt you. That's all of us here. Don't you see we need skill in living life? And that's why James says, ask for it. And so there's nothing at all in God that will keep him from giving, but there may be something in us that can keep us from getting wisdom. And James tells us about it now in verse 6. Here's what he says. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. What does that mean? You can't have any questions about God? No, it doesn't mean that. It means it makes no sense to ask God for something if you don't believe God hears and cares. That's just foolish. Why waste your breath? That's what it means. It doesn't mean that your faith has to be fully matured. None of us is in that situation. We're all growing It means you must have to have a certain measure of confidence in God to believe that he's there, one, that he exists, and that he cares, two. I mean, if you doubt those things, what's the point of even asking him for something? And so doubting is wavering between two opinions about God. It's the person who essentially says, I will ask, but I doubt he's willing to answer. Well, if I could put uh, words... Uh, that I think are James, James would say, why waste your words? If you don't even think God is there, if you don't even think God hears, if you don't even think God cares, why even speak to him? So a person who asks for God's help but then doubts his willingness to give it is, according to verse 6, here's what it says, like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That's a person who asks, yet doubts. That person has a divided mind. He's divided between trusting God and not trusting God. Hmm. That's a tough concept to get, but I think I can simplify it by sharing a poem with you written by a famous theologian named Dr. Seuss. You know about him. So Dr. Seuss wrote a poem about a character named the Zode. And uh, I shall read it to you. Did I ever tell you about the young zode who came to a sign at the fork in the road? Here, just to help you. <laughs> he looked one way and the other way, too. The Zod had to make up his mind what to do. Well, the Zod scratched his head and his chin and his pants. He said to himself... I'll be taking a chance. If I go to place one, that place may be hot. So how will I know if I like it or not? On the other hand, though, I, I'll feel such a fool if I go to place two and find it's too cool. In that case, I may catch a chill and turn blue. So place one may be best and not place two. Place safe, cried the Zode. I'll play safe. I'm no dunce. I'll simply start off to both places at once. And that's how the Zod, who would not take a chance, went no place at all with a split in his pants. (laughs) And that's the person James is speaking about. Trust God, not trust God, believe in God, not believe in God, make up your mind. Again, doubting here does not mean the absence of legitimate questions. Uh, Doubting here doesn't mean that our faith is fully matured. Doesn't mean that at all. It's about divided loyalties. And God, in verse 7, makes it clear what that kind of person should expect. It says, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why not? Well, again, according to verse 8, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This picture hurts to look at. An unstable man. A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In the early days of the automobile, a man purchased a Model T Ford. He was driving it, but it stalled out along the side of a road. He got out to try to fix it, but it didn't work. And then soon thereafter, a big old limousine pulled up behind him and out from the back exited a man who came to the car and said to the distressed driver, can I help? And the man said, certainly. And so the man... Uh, worked on it and tinkered with it just a little bit and said, okay, now try starting it up. And immediately it started up. Uh, The man who fixed it, stepped out of the limousine, was Henry Ford. True story. And he said to the man, I'm the one who designed and built these cars and therefore I should know what to do when something goes wrong with them. So I apply it to us. God is the one who designed us. He knows how to fix things when they go wrong with us. Therefore, he ought not to be the one we make last resort to, first resort. James says, if you lack skill in living life and want more of it, go to God for it. He's our designer. And just to get a glimpse at the kind of wisdom uh, that emanates from the wise mind of God, take a look at verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. What is going on there? Well, some would tell you this ought not be, and that is that the brother or sister, the Christian, should not experience lowly or humble circumstances at all. Those are folks who tell you that if your faith is sufficient in Christ, you should experience no health issues or lack of wealth. You should have all of these things. There should be no humble, lowly circumstances that befall a true believer. Uh, You should prosper always. In fact, they're called prosperity preachers and teachers. It's very interesting because it flies in the face of Scripture. If you're going to be a preacher of any kind, you really ought to be an adversity preacher. Because the scriptures say much more about adversity than prosperity. Why is that? Well, most of us do better in adverse times than in prosperous times. David was one such person. Way back in Psalm 119, David said in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. A few verses after that, the same David said, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. There's something that happens when we go through difficult times that God often sees to be opportune in terms of our eternal well-being. Tough times enhance our dependence on him if we choose to go to him first. And So Paul here is saying... Uh, a brother or sister can experience humble circumstances. And when you do, says James, glory in your high position. And this is such a paradox. How could the impoverished believer have riches, high position, spiritual riches, you see? The believer could experience illness, And even poverty. In fact, what's quite interesting, most of those to whom James lived and was speaking experienced not prosperity, but the absence of wealth, specifically because they followed Christ. They're being persecuted in this day, they lost materially much because of their identification with Christ. Boy, that flies in the face of the prosperity teachers who would say, no, if your faith in Christ is adequate, you should have no lack materially. Well, their faith was not only adequate, they followed even at the cost of their own lives, and they lost most of what the world has to offer. And yet, James still says to them, glory in it, because you have a high position. What high position? Folks, regardless of the absence of health or wealth, if you're in Christ You and I have been elevated to a whole different reality. We've been moved from the domain of darkness, the scriptures say, to the kingdom of the beloved son. We're referred to as the chosen people. Think about this, a royal priesthood. That's an elevation in our status. We have been given spiritual riches which are not subject to decay, inflation, theft. Though we can lose material things, we can't lose the spiritual riches which we have in Christ. And by the way, that's what the Bible really emphasizes. The prosperity teachers are missing the point. Ephesians says, for instance, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's as if the God of heavens has opened up the warehouse of heaven and poured it out on one such as you and I. But it's not a promise of material blessing. It's a promise of spiritual blessing. Like what? Things that come from the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control. Those are spiritual blessings. Don't you feel spiritually blessed to be forgiven? Don't you feel spiritually blessed to follow in the footsteps of a resurrected Lord? Lord, death no longer has its hold on you. To be absent from your body, though it may be ravaged by illness now, is to be present with the Lord. You can't forfeit those things. I memorized Psalm 18.2. I'm working on it. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, My rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Those are spiritual blessings. One's condition physically or financially cannot interfere with those things. And that's why James could say, let the brother or sister who's down not be out because you have a high position in Christ, glory in it. So that's what he says. And uh, then he goes on to speak to the condition of wealthy uh, Christians. But before we get there, let me mention to you, and this is why I have such a hard time seeing how prosperity teachers can teach what they teach. I ask you this question. Was the Lord Jesus a sinner? No. Was the Lord Jesus, did the Lord Jesus lack faith? No. And yet the Lord Jesus was very poor. He owned pretty much nothing. The prosperity teachers would look to him today and say, you lack faith. Faith. Let me just review to you what the Lord didn't have. He was born in a stable, not belonging to Him. His first miracle of turning water into wine was with jugs, not belonging to Him. He fed the 5,000 with fish and bread, not belonging to Him. His triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, we acknowledge it today, was on a donkey, not belonging to him. He had the last supper with his disciples in a room, not belonging to him. He was buried in a tomb, not belonging to him. And Randy Weber in the last class pointed this out. He had sin, not belonging to him. He had nothing of what the world has to offer. Where's prosperity theology when it comes to he who had so little? In fact, as God, of course, he was rich, but he became poor that we might become rich spiritually. And so I love the sentiment here in Second Corinthians uh, 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And so, you see, we have a wonderful example of how even in lowly circumstances we can glory in our, in our high position. This flies in the face of television Christianity, it seems to me, which thinks there's a problem our faith is defective if we're not on the top of society. We don't have the best of what the world has to offer. Say that to Jesus. He had nothing of what the world had to offer. So if I conducted a survey here or anywhere and said, would you rather be rich or poor? It would be understandable that most, no, I think all of us would say, I'd rather be rich. That's Understandable because wealth uh, can alleviate certain burdens and provide relief in certain ways. It's surely more desirable to be rich than poor, it seems to me. In fact, we've been groomed as Americans to think that if we are wealthy enough, we will have everything we need, including happiness. That isn't true, though, is it? The truth is that wealth can so distort our perspective that we miss out on what really matters, things of eternal consequence. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say money is probably the most seductive idol of our time. It's a false god. In fact, there are countless stories, you know of them just as I do, of lives that have been wrecked not for lack of money. But because of an abundance of money, you see, when you have it, it can easily cause us to lose sight of what really matters. I have a cousin. He was the first one of our family to go to college. Our background was not... Uh, we we were... I'm reluctant to say poor because... We, I don't think we were poor but we didn't have much and so for one of us to go off to college was like a whoa a big deal. He was the first. And he went off to school and got a degree in accounting. And then when you get a degree in accounting you take this exam to become a certified public accountant a CPA. And I, at least then it was a four part exam and a uh, few Pass all four parts at once. No big deal. You retake it. Well, my cousin sat for the exam. We were all anticipating how he did. He passed all four parts the first time. This was a huge thing for us. We all celebrated. Then it got better. He was offered a position at a big company in Chicago. And there he goes. He moved to Chicago. And he was making lots of money, purchased a house, got married, had kids, was living the good life, had cars, the whole deal. It consumed him. His marriage ended. His kids became embittered. He had a breakdown of an emotional kind. He had need for lots of support. He's on medication today even. Money is a wonderful slave, but a horrible master. My cousin was mastered by it. So the poor believer surely faces trials, but so too does the rich believer. The primary challenge for the poor believer is to maintain confidence in the Lord. But the primary challenge for the rich believer is to avoid placing too much confidence in his or her riches. So, God knows this, and he allows trials to come into the lives both of the poor believer and the rich believer, because trials are an opportunity, the text says, for the brother in humble circumstances to glory in his high position, but trials are also an opportunity for the rich Christian to glory in his humiliation, and that is what James tells us, doesn't he, in verse 10, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. You see, a wealthy person could put too much confidence in his wealth. What could correct his thinking? Well, trials could do it, especially those that cannot be alleviated by his wealth. What does it do? It brings that one down to earth. Therefore, he's told, glory in it. Glory in your humiliation Some people say wealth, as I mentioned earlier, is a result of faith. But I think wealth is a test of faith. Do you have your wealth or does your wealth have you? When God senses that our material things are having us, he can send a wonderful helper into our life, hardship and trial to bring us back down to earth, help us reorder our priorities. When my wife and I got married, um, I was a missionary overseas and we didn't have much in those days. We rented a couple rooms upstairs from a wonderful German family who lived down below. This was in Heidelberg, Germany. We didn't have much. Uh, I worked um, before I could raise support in a military hospital. It was the 100... 30th Station Hospital in Heidelberg, Germany, made famous because that's where they brought General Patton. That's where he died. Well, I didn't have a car, so I got a bike. It was uh, a 10-speed bike. I paid 40 bucks for it, but the gears were not working well, so I sought to fix it, and I made a 10-speed into a (laughs) 1-speed. I realized bike repair was not my calling, I would write it back and forth. That's what we had. We didn't have much of anything. It was great. It was great. Simple life. Relationship development, both with each other and with the Lord. I bet many of you have had that experience as well. <clears throat> and so James says, glory in it. Glory in what may come to be your lowly status, because in those days, you can be free of distracting things that cloud your vision, and you can get your eyes focused on what, really, on what really matters. Now, look, folks, money is quite useful and helpful. I'm just making the point that it's a very poor God, and it is so fleeting that James says this in verses 10 and 11. And the rich man is to glory, see, in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Reminds me of the Texas wildflowers. Get in on it. April, this is the time to go up to Brenham and see him. You got about a two-week window, and then they're gone. That's what this reminds me of. Wealth is very fleeting. So are wealthy people. And so James is essentially saying, we're not here to stay. We're here to go. Therefore, we should so order our affairs. We should be so skillful in living life now that we are living now in terms not of where we are, but where we are going. You know where we're going? To be in the very presence of a resurrected Savior. And that's why the psalmist could say, whom have I in heaven but thee? Doesn't mean there aren't other things in heaven. There are angels and harps, I suppose. I don't know. Streets of gold. But the psalmist is essentially saying, though, there are lots of pleasures in heaven. The The reality of heaven I most look forward to is Jesus. Whom have I in heaven? Nothing else matters but thee. And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. You don't get to that point overnight, do you? Sometimes the Lord will uh, strip away things that are distracting us from him because nothing else lasts, nothing else matters, only he does. I'll tell you this story, I don't think it's true, but it's funny. There was a man who loved money more than anything, and so he worked all his life to accumulate as much as he could. He hoarded it. Just before he died, he told his wife, look, when I die, I want you to put all my money in the casket with me. He said, I want to take my money with me to the afterlife, whatever it consists of. And she promised to do so. Well, he died. At his funeral, just before the casket was permanently closed, his wife put a big box into it. And the wife's friend said to her, what in the world are you doing? Why did you do that? I can't believe you put all that money in there. And the wife said, look, I promised him I would. I promised him I would put the money in the casket, and I kept my promise. And so I totaled up all of his savings and all of his resources, and I wrote out a check for it (laughs) for the full amount and put it in there. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, there's coming a day, for some of us, it may be sooner rather than later, when all of our accumulated wealth, stuff." Is going to be just as good as that check. Not very good at all. Therefore, we would be wise, skillful in living life, not to put our trust in money, health, anything, for security, for satisfaction, for happiness, for peace. We would be wise to trust in Christ alone for those things. I like these, this children's drawing. That makes the point. We even sing it around here. In Christ alone, I put my trust. that's biblical wisdom. Make an investment in what matters. Though here we endure lots of hardships, lots of difficulties. Though here we forgo many pleasures for the sake of eternal gain. In Christ alone I put my trust. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a son or daughter no matter what, and you even have permission to be miserable at it. There's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not be miserable. You can be a miserable child of God. At times, that's what it feels like. There's nothing that obligates us to do something about it sinfully. We could just say, oh, God, If you want a miserable kid, you done got one. I'm not happy. I don't think Jesus was often happy. I don't think it's happy to be stripped naked, to have a crown of thorns impaled upon your head, causing all kinds of bleeding, to be scourged with whips that would kill most people, to be publicly humiliated and impaled on a cross, and then to suffocate. I don't think those are the. that's the formula for happiness in life. In fact, one time in his misery, he even cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <clears throat> why shouldn't we share in some measure in the sufferings of Christ? Why shouldn't we? <clears throat> I don't think the purpose of life is to be happy. If so, we are miserable failures at it. I think the purpose of life is to be in close relationship with the giver of life, to walk through it with him, to complain, to shout, to cry, to praise, all the full gamut of emotions, and yet to put our trust in him with whom we will make do throughout eternity because he's a risen Savior. My fellow Christians, I pray for me as a, I hope you pray for yourself. This singular uh, devotion to Christ. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Nothing there will matter but him. Therefore, I desire nothing on earth. Fame, fortune, popularity, all the rest. Even without it, you have Christ. And with Christ, what else do we need? He didn't just save us from the penalty of sin. He saved us from undue dependence on that which is not going to give us a good return. He saved us from it. He said, I will be your God. Let go of false gods that can't hear you. <laughs> I hear your, your heart. Lord Jesus, for this we thank you. Praise you that risen, you're risen from the dead, and that's why we can talk to you as we are now. Thank you for wisdom which you possess inherently and which you're willing to bequeath to us for the asking. Oh, God in heaven, make us to be skillful at living life, even if we fail to. You love us. Your compassions never fail. Your love never ends. But it would be better for us to do this thing called life with skill. Therefore, we ask you wisdom in it. Make us to be wise, not just knowledgeable, but wise. And to finish well, that's our heart's desire, to finish well and then see you face to face. Get a big hug of an eternal kind and realize then nothing matters but communion with you. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you, folks. We will not see you here next week, but we will see you in worship on Resurrection Sunday or Saturday. God bless you.